You are now listening to the March 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to the final program in our Attributes of God series. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Today we will be putting all of God's attributes together and studying the final attribute that He alone has, and that is, I am. We see the first mention of this in Exodus chapter 3 when God was talking with Moses about sending him back to Egypt and setting the Israelites free from the slavery and oppression Pharaoh was putting on them. In verses 13 through 15, Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The children of Israel would know this immediately because God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Then in Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, God said to Isaac, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And finally, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, God gave Jacob the name Israel and said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. The children of Israel knew their scriptures and would know for certain their God had sent Moses to them. In the New Testament, Jesus calls himself this in John chapter 8, where the Jews were incredulous that he was not yet 50 years old and yet claimed to have seen Abraham. And in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the great I Am. They are transcendent, infinite, eternal, creator, omnipresent, everywhere at once, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, immutable or unchanging, healer, sanctifier, and sovereign. 
They are love, holy, good, jealous, merciful, patient, faithful, forgiving, truthful, gracious, righteous, and spirit. These wonderful attributes are like a tapestry of different threads woven together to make a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of God. In closing, it is my prayer that through this study of the attributes of God that you have learned new things about our awesome and amazing God and that you have drawn much closer to Him and have developed a deeper connection in prayer with Him by learning more about Him. I would like to end our program series with the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, where he writes, Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Gladly bearing 
He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. And when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow. In humble adoration And there proclaim My God, how great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art, how great thou art, how great thou Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. Today on our podcast, we're going to be covering the ability to deal with expectations. Last time we talked about unmet expectations and the things that hold us back things like selfishness or withholding information, miscommunication, insensitivity, family of origin issues, core values, personality issues, all kinds of things. And I have Polly here again in the studio. Hi, Polly. Hello. And um, so now we're going to talk to about the 
different things that can flatten out the bumps of those unmet expectations. So gaining awareness of our own expectations, you know, just sometimes we have blind spots and we're not even aware of the expectations we have, or maybe we thought we had expectations, but we can't identify them. Right. Or we might even have two different expectations at the same time. I want to get somewhere on time. I want to be pleasing to you, but I also want to have a few minutes to sit down and put my feet up. And I also want to come home to a clean house before we leave. So I'm trying to get things cleaned up. And I want to have a really good marriage, but I also want to be able to express to you the things that that are going on inside of me, and I want to be able to point out the things that I think you're doing wrong, and I want you to not be defensive. Okay, okay, you got you got so many wants. So you know, we're talking about flattening out the bumps. You sound like you're making more bumps here. Honey. Well, I have all these expectations, but I know, maybe, but do they all have to be done? Well, but the thing is, they might all be underneath the surface. I have these things that I want, but I don't think I should want them. And so I feel kind of ashamed that I have all these expectations. And I just go around doing all of these things. I'm straightening things up. And I'm at the same time that I'm thinking, oh, I wish I could sit down. And all you You're a see, complicated lady. That's I all I know. know. Well, but... Are uh, all women like this? <laughs> I don't, I don't Please know. Please write us or email us. Let me know if all you women are but as complicated as my wife. If I'm not aware that these are my expectations, there's no way that you can know that these are my expectations. All you see is me running around doing all of these things and growing more anxious by the moment when you're trying to get out the door. <laughs> That was very well said. I don't know if it's going to help anybody. <laughs> Develop the want to. You must have the desire or willingness to release your expectations, to not insist on your own way, to compromise, to adjust. I mean, that sounds really easy to say, but, I mean, it's really the attitude in um, Ephesians or Philippians where it says, have this attitude, which is also in Christ, you know, who lay down his life and... Uh, to serve, not to be served, and to give his life. And we need to be willing to adjust some of our expectations in order to get along with each other. Well, yes, that may, I think that that's true. And the thing is that if you are the one who is always expressing your expectations. You're very aware of your expectations. And so you speak your expectations and you're married to a person who in return, yes, stuffs their expectations and stifles their expectations. Then you can think you're always right. The other person always agrees with you and you just don't understand. You don't know that that other person is struggling inside or building resentment inside because you don't hear what their expectations are. And if you don't ask to hear their expectations... And actually listen? Yes. If you don't want to hear what they're actually thinking and you're perfectly satisfied... It's in the way of the objective. (laughs) We got to just do what we got to do here. You know, the thing is, in the moment... 
everything seems to be going along just fine because you're getting what you want without any Back objection wash. or <laughs> yes, but you're building meantime, up resentment. Thing. Yes, the other person is building up resentment, and you're just. Uh, waiting for a blow-up to occur without even knowing that that's what the future holds for you. Or there may not be a blow-up. There may just be distance that occurs, a separation until finally the other person just walks away and says, well, I'm done with this relationship. You don't even care what I want. You don't even want to know what I want. So, well, we flattened that one out. <laughs> Third one we're talking about is make the truth your standard rather than your own emotions, feelings, your own stuff. Sometimes it's easier to apply scripture to others' situations than your own. And prayerfully reading the Bible gives a plumb line for our marriage and our relationship. And so, you know, we need to have the Word of God be a part of our life, have this, you know, in order to renew our mind, we need to be in the Word. And many times I'll ask people, how, how much Scripture are you reading? You know, and they'll say, well, not much. And how much time are you praying with your spouse? Well, not just at dinner, you know. Mm -hmm. And then they're wondering why they have so many bumps in the road. And so certainly praying together... One, it's hard to pray with somebody who you have an offense against. And so then the, everything sort of backs up. It's like a domino effect. I have to learn how, and, and we find that it's uh, many couples don't have a very good cycle of forgiveness and letting go and reconciling and then starting again. Mm -hmm. And yet Jesus talked about the need to forgive and forgive 70 times 7 but, you know, in the moment, that's a little hard to do. Well, I think the idea that we know <laughs> what Jesus said is very important. If we're not spending time in the Word and we're not taking time to hear the words of Jesus and reflect on what the Bible says in terms of how we just— live a Christian life and what types of behaviors are pleasing to God, whether we're talking about marriage or life in general, then we don't have his truth as our standard. So here's what Philippians 2 says in verse 1 and following. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any anticipation of uh, participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Yeah. So it doesn't say you don't have an interest. It just says... Let's look for out for the other person's interest. And if we're doing that in a marriage, somebody said the first one to the cross wins. You know, the first one to humble themselves, to be willing to crucify their flesh and not let your selfishness guide you. To me, that ends up helping us in our relationship with each other. And many people don't know how to take a scripture like that and sit down with the Lord 
and apply it to their own lives. And that's just a crucial skill for people to develop as Christians, just to take one verse and sit down with that verse before the Lord and ask him, Lord, how do you want to apply that to my life? And to write it down. That's what journaling is, and that's a very big part of making the truth my standard in my life. So one of the things that we've done over the years, maybe because of we had uh, Campus Crusade training earlier in our life, they taught us how to pray through Scripture. So in this case, with this verse, Alan, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count Pauly as more significant than yourself. Wow. (laughs) That kind of drives it home, doesn't it? Yeah. So, Lord, I want to look not only for my own interests, I need to look out for her interest as well. So that's just a simple way to help Scripture become practical, applicable. Yes. So another thing that we can do to smooth out the bumps in terms of expectations is hanging around somebody who actually does a good job Mm -hmm. with meeting expectations of one another. And not that they're the same person, but they have differences, but you learn to watch them give and take, and you have a a model that maybe you didn't have in your own home. Mm -hmm. That's right. We need to be spending time with other believers, and that can't be helped sometimes in our work settings and our school lives. and But certainly, we can choose who our friends are. We can choose to find other people who can give us objectivity regarding what our home life is like and to Uh, to give us some other principles in how we're living our lives. Well, and you can ask questions of those people. I mean, I've spent a lot of time, as I grew as a believer, trying to talk to older Christians and just asking them questions about, how do you do this? How do you do this family thing? And how do you keep your relationship fresh and that sort of thing? Right. And I think that seminars, just getting input by going to a a marriage seminar or a marriage retreat or watching YouTube videos, (laughs) there's so much available on the internet now to get teaching from pastors and trusted Christian teachers who can give us input on what a good marriage is supposed to be. I just think that our tendency is to get the knowledge but not get the application, and that's why we need to be in fellowship and in relationship and in community with people to get a gut check on this is what I know, but this is what I'm doing, and be able to learn how to do the right things rather than I can know it, but I may not be doing it. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that we talked about in our last session was our family of origin. And maybe if a person has grown up in a very abusive family or a home where there was alcoholism or a lot of angry fighting and throwing of things and destructiveness, they don't see that as as dysfunctional because to them, that was normal. That's the way they grew up, and they carry that into their marriage, and they start to get 
upset with their spouse and the, they throw something or they raise their voice or mm. they kick over a lamp or whatever. They break things. And to them, that's normal. Well, to have other people in their lives who can say, you know, that really, that's not really our standard. That's not the way Christ wants us to live. That might be the first time they have to deal with the fact that maybe their family of origin had some issues. Well, uh, and your husband or wife may not be the best person to uh, <laughs> counsel you at that time. Exactly. So another thing is to talk to your spouse or significant other, communicate to one another in a relaxed setting. In other words, find a place where it's good to talk and good to get your expectations out where it's easier than in a crowded Sometimes a restaurant would be a good place so you don't raise your voice, but sometimes you'd rather have a quiet place. Sometimes you got to turn your, you know, every restaurant seems to have a TV, so it might be better to go somewhere where there is no TV. I don't know where that is anymore, but, and then just asking what and how questions rather than the why tends to put people on the defensive. And um, in order to get somebody's expectations out, there has to be an openness and how and what questions do much better at letting somebody open up. I think discussions like this are so incredibly helpful and so important, but you really need to be in a setting where you're not in the middle of a conflict and you are open to hear what the other person says, and you are willing to not interrupt and try to defend yourself. If you ask your partner something like, well, what can I do to help you open up to me? What, what do you need from me in this situation? And if your partner starts to say, well, I think you should, and immediately you interrupt or you say, ah, like you're always telling me <laughs> and start to react to them, that's going to immediately shut down the, the, uh, the conversation. So to just sit there with even a, a paper and, Cup of coffee. and pen and yeah, or, you know, to say, okay, I'm, I want to write down what you're saying so that I remember this and to hear each other out without defensiveness and to say, okay, I appreciate what you're saying. Thank you very much for telling me that. I didn't know. I want to incorporate this. I want to hear this from right. you. So it needs to be intentional, and we need to find what are the settings that are good to do that in. And sometimes we need to get out of the house. Sometimes we need, you know, a half a day rather than just 10 minutes or 20 minutes. And I find a lot of couples don't take the time to do things like this. Right. And we need to be truly willing to be open and be receptive and realize, okay, I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I know there are things that I do just as much as I see that there are things that he or she does that could improve, that there's always going to be room for improvement in each of our lives. Right. And then, of course, we've mentioned already praying together, the honesty and humility required when you come together before the Lord is helps us be on equal ground. Well, totally. I, having 
not been a Christian for most of my life (laughs) before we got married. And then coming together before the Lord with you on our knees gave me a sense of the awesomeness of God that if I was praying with you, I could not be withholding information because God sees my heart. God knows what's going on inside of me. And when we come together before the Lord, we need to be truthful and honest in our prayers. So, and then just the last one, having fun with all the responsibilities. Many of us never take the time to just have a good time. And I know one thing we did recently was start to schedule game nights with our friends just because we needed to have some time to laugh and have some fun and not have, we're very goal-oriented and trying to do things. And so finding ways to just have fun together, do something that you used to do, you know, in the past that just have a good time and forget your problems for a while and just do something fun. Right, right. I think that that's really important. And that doesn't mean that you have to go and watch a a funny movie. You can just do something that's enjoyable, like take a walk, go hiking, get out into nature, uh, do something that both of you enjoy. So in conclusion, we want to nurture an atmosphere and cultivate an atmosphere of love. Dr. Gary Rosberg says this in his book, Five Love Needs of Men and Women. In our national survey, a majority of both men and women told us that unconditional love is their number one love need from their marriage partner. No doubt many would expect the number one need for men would be sex and the number one need for women would be communication. But that was not what we found. Instead, a different, different as men and women are, both agreed on this one truth. We all need to be loved unconditionally by our spouse. And I think that bears itself out in biblical truth, that love never fails. That's so true. So we'll see you next time in Walking Our Talk. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. Now, just like the wise man who built his house upon the rock, and he was a doer of the word. We pray that you walk the walk of faith, trusting that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it.
my power to save Then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 602- 866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Cure for a Broken Heart. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. We're going to be thinking about God, the stars, and you. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about stars this week, and I had this one question that kind of got stuck in my mind as I was trying to think about How many sand pieces would it take? There was this book that was actually written by a guy out of Hawaii, a researcher. As you think about the vastness of God, does that make you, in one sense, think, wow, that's great that God's that big. Do you ever think to yourself, maybe he's so big and vast, I mean, that's mind-blowing, that just maybe it's unrealistic to think that that great God would think about lowly, small you. I've known people all the time who look at themselves and they feel as they think about the vastness of God, small, insignificant, neglected, like God's too busy to care for them as an individual. We're going to be thinking about this morning. We're in our Songs from the Shadow series in Psalms, in Psalm 147, which is, by the way, an epic psalm. It gives a grand vision of who God is about his sovereignty and power and might. The psalmist calls God's people to revel in the God whose providence rules over stars and clouds and water, as well as his extraordinary care for the people that bear his name. See, he pulls in God's providence and God's people, and he says these are actually two doctrines that need to go hand in hand, and they should comfort us. So he named the stars, but he puts his name on a people. And I believe what this psalm does is it encourages God's people to trust God's power and wisdom as they await the Messiah and his coming kingdom. Now, the psalmist drops a few clues about the context of this psalm. Uh, We know from verse 2 that he is envisioning a day when there is a, a rebuilding of Jerusalem, the city of God where God dwelt with his people, the heart of the kingdom of God. And in this vision, you'll notice that he is gathering the scattered exiles of Israel to dwell together in Zion. God will restore his people. 
Now, if you're taking notes, this is a great thing to write down. It's our big idea. This is our, our big idea this morning. It is that the lifter of the stars is fully able to lift up his people. That's what we're going to see this morning in this text. It is that the lifter of the stars is fully able to lift up his people. Now, do you believe that? I hope that as we go through this word that your confidence in that grows. Well, first, you'll, you need to notice uh, an important note that the psalmist makes up top. And that's this. He says that praising God is pleasant and fitting. Praising God is pleasant and fitting. And in verse 1, the psalmist begins with a, a dogged command and a grounding reason for that command. His command is this, praise the Lord... He says, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Now, what is his reason? That we should sing praises to God. It is because God, it is good for us to do that. As God's people, it is good for us to sing to our God. Praising God, it's not just pleasant. Notice it's also fitting and right. Now, what makes it right for sinners Sinners as we are, to sing to a holy God who sits in the heavens doing as he pleases. Well, we have a biblical word for that. It's called grace. See, God's grace to God's people mean that we are never as human as God made us to be as when we are singing hallelujah to the Lord. We are never as human as God intended us to be as we are recognizing God in loud song that is appropriately tied to our lives, rejoicing in him for all that he is. I love what Derek Kidner says here. He says in his commentary about singing, he says, the very act of responding articulately to God's pure glory and goodness is enlivening and emancipating. It brings us to life and it brings freedom to our souls to want to serve God with all that we are. So let's just sing. When we sing, let's sing like we want to enliven and emancipate all that can hear. Now the rest of these verses, I believe, are are kind of commentary Further explaining why it's pleasant and fitting to sing to the Lord. Notice second verses 2 to 6 this. Uh, We see the psalmist tell us the lifter of the stars is also the lifter of his humble people. First you'll notice that he is the lifter of his people. Verses 2 and 3. Look there and see what God's word says again. It says the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers out the outcast of Israel And he heals the brokenhearted. He binds their wounds. And so here you'll catch the beauty of the two images that he combines. The first envisions God rebuilding Jerusalem, God's people, and gathering his wounded scattered outcast. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds their wounds. The point is, is that God, when he is looking for a people, is not looking for what's special in us. He is actually looking to demonstrate the greatness of who he is. And so often, it is the lowly who provide the best lumber for God to make much of the glory of his name. See, none of us are indigenous Christians born into the kingdom of God. And that's why we need a new birth. Because the first birth into a Christian home or a good personality doesn't make you more than an alien to God. Our manufacturer's default setting is that of sin-sick outcast, alienated from God, needing to be brought near to him. And do you see the beauty of this? God cares for the lowest of the low of his people. So if you're in, you're in. If you're part of God's people, God cares for you. That's what that means. He loves you. He loves all of his children as a father loves his children. But not only that, notice he's not just one who cares for his kids. He's also the lifter of the stars. Did you see that? 
Did you catch how quickly he, he moves from the lowly to raising their gaze up to the unparalleled heights of the glory of God in the second image? He sees that in verses four to five. Look what he says. There, God's word says this about God. He says, he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now in Genesis 15, five, you might remember that God made a great promise to Abraham and he said, I want you to look up to the heavens and I want you to start counting the stars and as many stars as you count, so shall your offspring be. You will have offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. And just as Adam named his animals in Eden, showing a sign of his dominion over them, God is naming the stars, claiming dominion over the spheres, over the expanse of the heavens. They go infinitely great into oblivion. And yet here what we find is something amazing. Just as this is true, God says this. Here the psalmist says that the same God who named the stars has put his name on his people. Now just think about this. The Egyptians worshipped the sun, right? The sun god Ra. And they worshipped this one star that our own solar system surrounds and goes around and hurls around day after day. This one sun, which is one of countless billions of billions of stars. And here we find that God not only knows them all, but names them all. That this is one speck under the grand sovereignty of a sovereign God. There is no God like him. And the destiny of the stars is determined by the same God who stoops down to dress the wounds of his humble people. Isn't that awe-inspiring that God would come that low and condescend that low that he would care for you, especially when you consider what he's done with the stars? Do you see the way the psalm flips God's greatness on its head? He's showing how great God is and how great his care is. Derek Kidner in his commentary writes this, the one who marshals the host of stars, calling them all by name, is more than equal to the problems in both power and understanding. And do you know that? Do you believe that? God's providence, his power, his unparalleled glory, it is not a reason not to take confidence in him, but a reason to take full confidence that whatever problem you face, however far you feel from God, however broken you feel like your life is, that he is a God, if he can lift the stars, he can lift your life. That's the nature of our God. What hope? What hope in this great God? See, he's not too great to be bothered by our problems. He's so great that we can trust his power and wisdom in our everyday lives. That's why verse six promises the broken heart. The brokenhearted who seek humility, he says this, the Lord lifts up the humble. But catch this, he also casts the wicked to the ground. He is a just God. A great reversal is coming for those who humble themselves before the lifter of the stars. Have you humbled yourself before God this morning? Have you sought him and pursued him? Are you running from him? Catch this, God lifts the humble, but he casts down the wicked. Now, have you ever felt like God had a little bit too much on his plate to concern himself with your life? Anybody ever had that, that thought? Maybe God's just too busy, or maybe you're like the other way, and you're like, I'm pretty important. I don't know why God's not paying more attention. Uh, but either way, you feel like maybe God is not quite as involved as he ought to be in your life. Maybe you know God is powerful and wise, but you feel like he is far off from concern with 
your life. You know, I had a, a friend uh, recently who told me a story about taking his daughter to the doctor. And he's taking her to the doctor, and he's sitting there and having to watch as this doctor is doing kind of a scary procedure on her. And uh, he even at one point had to like kind of hold her down for the procedure. And in the middle of it, she looks up at him with her, her big eyes and says, Daddy, why are you letting him do this to me? That's why I'm glad I don't have girls, by the way. Because like I've got nothing for that. But I'm guessing that maybe some of you feel a little bit like that in life sometimes. Like, God, why are you letting them do this to me? Why are you not interacting? Why are you not coming and saving me? Where are you? And even more so when it looks like the wicked are prospering all around you and you're brokenhearted. You're brokenhearted over your sin, over the unmet desires of your heart. Whether they be godly or not, you grieve over that which you do not have, over your marriage or over your lack of a marriage, over not having kids, over your kids who have not put their faith in Christ over being abused or over the changing dynamics of family life, like sending a kid off to college or moving to another state. And in all of that, you're just like, God, where are you? I feel very alone right now. And God, catch this, is not the great watchkeeper of your soul. See, he is not the great watchmaker who has in some ways created this universe and then just steps back and lets it kind of go as it will, but he never involves himself in it. That's not the picture that the Bible has of God. See, the picture that the Bible has of God is not that of God as a watchmaker, a great watchmaker who creates it and steps away, but that of a great physician who is coming and attentively paying attention to your wounds. And and everything that God does, it's hard to, to believe and understand this, but it is always for your best interest, even if we can't see it. God, in the scriptures, if you are his child, is always working things together for the good of those who are called to him, who love him, who are all, uh, he is working all of his purposes towards our good. Don't doubt it. And here's the promise that is coming here, and that is this, it's that a great reversal is coming to broken-hearted outcasts like you and me. Don't you long for that day? I mean, some days I long for it more than others, but I can't wait for the day that God has promised when he is going to undo everything that has been done that has broken our hearts, and he is going to explain how his glory has been made great, even through those things that we do not understand. That is the promise that's coming. I long for that day. Third thing that we see here, and that's this important point. Make sure you write this down. God's not impressed with your glutes or hammies, because nobody eats without God. That's true. It's in the text. We're going to see it. God's not impressed with your glutes or your hammies because nobody eats without God. I think that's what verses 7 to 11 are saying. Now, just beware, this is true of both horses and humans. We see this in this text, horses and humans. Uh, If you don't believe me, look there again with me in your text. We're going to read verses 7 to 11. Here's what he says. Here's what God's word says. He says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with the clouds. And he prepares rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives the beast their food and the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. See, y'all didn't believe me, but that's right there in the text. You'll notice here how God, he moves from the stars down to the, the heavens and the clouds 
which God sovereignly prepares to give rain to the earth, to grow grass on the hills that God then uses to feed the beast and the ravens, which amazes me for a couple of reasons. First, I've had as many as nine pets at my home at one time, not including little boys. We are actually down to one now, and I can't say that that was a clean going down from nine to one. There were some deaths, some ugly things that happened in between, not on purpose, it just, you know, life happened, pets die. And yet here we find that God has tons of pets, right? Like a whole earth of pets, and he feeds them all. No one eats without God. No one has strength without God. Ultimately, the reason that we pray when we eat, if you pray when you eat, is a recognition that ultimately, all of our food ultimately comes from God. If God stops, we stop. That's the way it works. You'll notice here, there's something second that's really interesting. This envisions God's providential care over all things, his providence. Now, what is this providence of God? It's, it's a word that we use. It's not in the Bible, but it describes the way that the Bible speaks about things like we find right here. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism was written in Germany in 1563, and it was meant to teach people about theology, and it asked questions and then gave answers, and there was this question asked, what is the providence of God? And here is their answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds the heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful in poverty, yeah, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That is a big vision of God. That, by the way, also is a biblical vision of God. I mean, didn't you see it here? He is sovereign over the stars. He is sovereign over the rain, the clouds. He's sovereign over the, the fields that, that have grass on the hills that actually feed the animals, the beasts that most of us are not even aware of. Maybe forget to feed at nights. God has not forgotten the things that we forget about so much. God is pervasively sovereign over all things. And this looks entirely like what the psalmist has communicated here. Now here's something that I think this means by tangent. You know, I don't think the psalmist believes in good luck, bad luck, tough luck, or the luck of the Irish. He believes that, that God is actually sovereign over all things and things don't just happen. God is actually sovereign over them, working them towards his glorious will. And he believes in an altogether sovereign God who does as he pleases. He lifts the stars and he feeds the animals. So he's not impressed by our glutes or our hammies, right? Not impressed by the strength of men. It says the legs of men. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking like, oh yeah, I've been to the gym and I know how guys are about their legs. Uh, I was at the gym yesterday and I saw a guy like actually, you know, he was, and I'm not saying I've never done this, but he's like lifting up his shorts, right? To show like his leg muscles. He's like looking at them. He's like, man, doing good here. This is great. I'm impressed with myself. What about you, right? Things people do in the gym, it's crazy. Protect your minds and hearts. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. See, I think that he's actually pointing towards something even more. Now, maybe he's dealing with that, but I think at least something more than that. See, here we find that this psalmist is speaking of a, a kind of thing or kinds of things that people are impressed by to the degree that they begin to put their confidence and trust in them to the extent that they become God replacements. So in other words, they aren't just saying like, oh man, they're just impressed by these things as in like, wow, that's really cool. Maybe even giving God glory for it. But instead it's like, wow, that is so cool that I think like I'm gonna give my life to that. I'm gonna trust the strength of that guy to sort of save me and to help me with my problems rather than God. I'm gonna trust the strength of those horses and that army to, to protect me rather than to trust that God actually is my shield. 
That's more of what I think he's saying. I'm just wondering, have you ever been in that place where you have begun to look elsewhere for things to trust your life with? I know that this is a reality, hear me, for someone that even has really good theology. You can have great theology and life can hit you and you can start to ask some pretty, some pretty crazy questions. Some questions that you know the answers to, but you're giving the wrong answers to them. And life can hurt in such a way that you start to say things that, that just really aren't right or good or fitting about God. I don't know if you've ever been hit by life in such a way that it's really so difficult to understand how God is in control and for that thing to take place. Maybe you've been there and you've started singing along with Carrie Underwood, Jesus take the wheel, right? Like Jesus ever takes his hand off the wheel, right? Like that's, that's just not the Jesus that we know. Catchy song, by the way, but just not good theology, right? That's not who God is. God is, is one here who is pictured as always being sovereign over all things. See, Jesus is always sovereign over our lives. We're going to see that more in a minute. But when we think life is out of control, we tend to think that God is out of control. And we either look to Christ or we go God shopping. That's what we do in those difficult moments. That's basically what Psalm 27 is saying about the strength of horses. It gives us a clue as to what he's talking about. Uh, Notice there that the psalmist writes, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. Do you see it? Horses have become a God replacement for them. They have trust armies rather than God. And I think our hearts tend to do that as we find ourselves in these difficult situations in life. See, the Lord takes pleasure in those who revere him, those who hope in his covenantal steadfast love. That's what verse 11 says. Verse 11 says, here's what the Lord's impressed by. Here's what pleases him. Not the strength of men or horses, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. And by the way, those who also praise his name in song. Now, I know it's an imperfect illustration, but when I I read this and I think about the providence of God and how hard life can get sometimes, and I'm not just talking about my life, but the lives of many of you as I've I've talked with you and and heard your stories. Like sometimes it can feel a little bit like you're at war and you're just trying to like maintain sanity. It reminded me of a very imperfect illustration of William Prescott, who during the Battle of Bunker Hill, during the Revolutionary War, was telling his men what they were going to do. And the plan was for all of them to stand in line with their muskets pointed towards the enemy. And he said, I don't want you to fire until you see the white of their eyes, right? Don't flinch, don't run, just stay. Sometimes I feel like I'm waiting to see the white of somebody's eyes with life. Like, when is it time to, like, sort of fight and get out of this? And maybe sometimes you want to flinch or run because life gets so hard. And how much more when you see the guns getting close, and the smoke of the fire, and the bayonets? I mean, I mean life can come, and it, it can be scary, Right? I mean, when you're sitting in a room and you're waiting for your next cancer treatment or whenever you're, you just find that your, your child's missing or, or, or maybe when you find out that you've lost your job and, and you're wondering like, God, when are you going to relent on this? Like the situation, the circumstance, I, I just, I don't see the white of any eyes. Am I ever going to get out of this? And brothers and sisters, this is the way the human heart works. In fact, John Owen was writing about this. He was writing about how bitter providences can attack our souls with difficult questions about God. Things that we know aren't true, but that we begin to believe are true in our hearts lie straight from the pit of hell. And here's what he says. He says there are really four dangers for God's people when it comes to trusting in God's providence. Here's some areas where you've got to be careful about flinching or running from God. The first is visible confusion, right? 
So what he means by that is the oppression of, of tyrants, so like nations that are terrorizing other nations. Uh, we've seen genocide our own lifetimes many times over. Uh, fortunately, we've not been victims of that. But there are those who have experienced that and who have loved Jesus and who have seen visible confusion in the world. John Owen also gives uh, this interesting example of visible confusion in the fact that there are uh, horribly ungodly people who have really nice houses on the beach and that doesn't make sense to him. I think that was just a personal note. But there's a second one, and that's unspeakable variety. Take, for instance, Christians. Some are always persecuted, and some always are in peace. Some are in prisons, and some are in nice homes. Saints in some countries and ages are always oppressed, and others prosper. Some have been martyred, and some never touched. And as you look at that, you might think to yourself, well, okay, so I'm just trying to figure out, like, they love Jesus and they love Jesus, and yet we're seeing two different things happening to these, these two different groups, and it just confuses me, and it begins to make me ask questions, right? Or what about third, sudden alterations, like Job, right? Job was honored. He was honored. He honored God. He was a godly man, and all of his prosperity came to ruin in a moment. Same day he was praying, by the way. And this choice saint lost his house, his children, his health, and his wealth, and he never got any answers to why except that God is God. That you need to trust that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is good, and that he is for his people. That's the answer that Job got. But you can see how that can amaze the soul when we see those kinds of things happen to godly people and we don't know why. Or what about fourth, great, deep, and abiding distress? You know, maybe you're someone who's experienced chronic pain or unyielding debt or sickness or the loss of a spouse, and the list goes on because this world is clearly broken. Know this. These are moments when we begin to trust our own wisdom and power more than God's wisdom and power. And we see the world around us is broken, and we think that we are infinitely wise in a way that we understand that this isn't working better than God who says, I am in control and infinitely wise, and I know what I'm doing here. And it's in those moments that we most have to hope in God, trusting that God is greater than us, that his wisdom is greater than our wisdom, that his power and authority are greater than our power and authority. See, we look away from the lifter of the stars and the healer of our souls to sinful alternatives, but God delights in those who trust his heart even when they can't trace his hand. God is pleased, not by our power or wisdom, but by our reveling in and hoping in his steadfast covenant love. And brothers and sisters, let's not move until we see the white of Jesus' eyes face to face when he returns. Let us remain steadfast. But there's a final thing that we see here, and that's in verses 12 to 20. That's that the God of creation is also the God of his covenant people. See, the psalmist hits a similar note here, but adds an important point to this climax. Uh, notice in verses 12 to 13 that God is envisioning, or the psalmist is envisioning God restoring the fortunes of Jerusalem or Zion. That's God's holy mountain where he dwells with his people in his kingdom. He is seeing a day of restoration. And here's what it says in verses 12 and 13. He says this. He says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within. And he also says, he makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. I mean, this is a God here who is caring for a people. Notice that God's special blessing is given to his special people, the ones who bear his name. 
He strengthens their gates so that those who are inside the borders of the kingdom of God are safe from all external threat. That is something that they long for. We never see this fulfilled in the Old Testament, but we see that this is a promise that was made that they grasped onto, that they hoped in. And notice they also don't have to fear being drug off into exile, away from home and God anymore in this day. His special blessing is on their children, did you catch this, within them. God is looking at their children. Speaking of God's ongoing blessing from generation to generation, bringing peace into their borders. And here again, they experience shalom like we've seen many times in the Psalms. They have what every heart longs for. Shalom in the home, peace with God and one another such that they experience the fullness of life and joy with God. And notice here that God himself feeds them even better than the beast and the ravens because he gives them the finest of wheat. If you want good wheat, you get God's wheat. If you want really good wheat, you get God's finest wheat. And this finest wheat goes to God's people who bear his name. God honors these humble, wounded, broken-hearted outcasts as honored guests. They're not going to be outcasts forever. There's a day when they're going to come home and they're going to be with God again. And do you see the beauty of this? The outcast who hoped in God will feast like rock stars at God's table. These are folks who are going to experience unprecedented joy at a lavish feast with the Lord himself. But catch here how the psalmist funnels God's providential control over all things that great control he has over all things, he funnels it into his special care for his covenant people in verse 15. Think about that. Funneling the care that is given to the stars down into a central, unique people who bear his name. In verse 15, and here's what he says, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals like ice crumbs. Who can stand before this cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Now catch this. This speaks of God's word casting down snow and frost, which freezes a river. And then that same voice speaks again in such a way that it actually melts the frozen river so that it flows again. And it's speaking of God's sovereign control by his word over creation. We have an intelligent mind that rules and reigns over the creation that we see. And God's sovereign over all of these things. Think about this. Here we see that God is sovereign over all of the states of the elements and the seasons. And this psalmist doesn't believe in maverick molecules, old man winter, or a big man upstairs, which I always thought was like a really creepy description for anybody. But he doesn't believe in this like disconnected kind of God. So he believes in a personal God that's personal and that God has shown unprecedented care to his covenant people through. See, this God is showing a kind of love that is unique, speaking to them in a special way with the same word that he has not spoken to anyone else. So in the same way that he controls all things by his word, he says, catch this, the most special word of all is the word that he has given to you, his people. And he says that in verses 19 to 20, where he says, he declares his word to Jacob. That's speaking of Israel as a people. His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They, know, they do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So catch this. God's word says that God's word actually creates and sustains all things generally. But he has spoken specifically and specially to his covenant people. And Jesus picks up on this move from providence to a special 
confidence for God's people in Luke 12, 24, as Jesus speaks. And you might remember this. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on anxiety. And what does he say? Consider the ravens, right? Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have not storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Now, if you know what a raven is, then you understand even more the beauty of this picture. Ravens are scavenger birds, right? And we don't know much about scavenger birds because most of us are not gardeners, but they're very annoying. Like, they're the kind of thing you want to shoot because they'll, like, eat your crops and it's not theirs, right? I mean, most of us, the worst we've had is an experience at Chipotle. We walked away from our meal outside and the birds have come in and taken our food, right? But this is like talking about the livelihood of a people that could mean life or death. They hated these scavenger birds. They would have killed them. And yet here, birds that most people would hate, God cares for. And so if God cares for a rodent bird like that, how much more is he going to care for the people whom he loves, his children? How much more does he love them than that? See, that's why he tells his people not to flinch amidst the bitter provinces of this life. God never loses concentration on you. You might feel like he does, but your feelings lie if you're in Christ. He never loses sight of you. He's never not caring for you. That's what the Bible teaches pervasively. Here, that's why he tells them that they should not flinch against these bitter providences of life, but to seek the kingdom of God, trusting that God is pleased to give us the kingdom. See, God showed us how much more valuable we were than the ravens, didn't he? And how did he show us that? Well, it was when the father willingly sent his son, who willingly came and took on human flesh, and died on a cross, the infinite Son of God, in our place for you and me, to bear our sins, that we might be made peace and at right with God. And he was raised from the dead. He was exalted. He was humble and he was exalted. He lifted Christ higher than he lifted the stars to say that this son is unlike any son that you've known. And a constant declaration to all of you, all who will listen and believe, that I love you more than the birds. Man was made a little bit lower than the angels, and yet notice that I have exalted him high above all things. Why? Because God has shown a love for us. And why has he loved us? The Bible does not tell us why he would stoop to love something as low as us, except that it is with the great love with which he loved us, something in God that is glorious. That is the love God has given to us. He was raised up from the grave and exalted and given a name above every name so that you know you can trust him with your life. You can trust Jesus with your life. But catch this. I want to make sure we don't leave with just too small a view of Jesus here today. You know, I'm always in danger of that. And sometimes we forget the greatness of who Jesus is, the Jesus that we are trusting with our lives. And so Paul didn't want us to forget this. That's why he wrote this about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And this is how we know Jesus is not like any other prophet or any other religious figure. He is God incarnate. This is what, this is what Paul says about Christ. The one whom you are trusting with your life. Listen to this. If this isn't an image, it ought to give you confidence. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Oh, he's creator? Yeah, because all that is God is the eternal son. And so if God created, then Jesus is God. He created. Uh, He says, all things were created in heaven and on earth. That's right, stars and mountains and hills and grass and rain and, and all that. He created that. Both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him, catch this, all things hold together. Do you get the significance of that? doesn't mean that he just created it and walked away. It means that right now he is upholding you and the molecules in your body such that if he let go, you'd be gone. I'm just wondering, is your vision of Jesus maybe just a little bit too small? All of ours is, and he is the head of the body. Not only does he hold molecules, but he holds the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the one that you are trusting your life with. If Jesus holds the stars in his hands, you can trust him to hold you now and forever. Let's pray.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.